0: good morning my name is ed and and i'm one of the pastors here at gateway and as jordan said this is the first sunday in advent i grew up in a church that didn't celebrate advent Uh, advent is the season that the church has historically for many many years celebrated the coming of jesus advent means jesus and one of the ways that we do that uh liturgically, we we light a candle each Sunday to celebrate some aspect of telling the story. And then we kick candles over regularly, which are scattered all over the stage. Uh, The first candle, which is the first week of Advent, represents the prophets. And then next week, we will light two candles, and the second candle represents the Holy Family and uh, if you know the story, you know, the, the story progresses according to these themes. The third week, we'll light three candles, and uh, it's, it, the, the third candle represents the shepherds and the angels who sang, and the shepherds came to see the baby Jesus after he was born. And then the fourth week, we will light four of those candles, and the fourth Sunday, we'll talk about the Magi. And this year, for our Sunday morning conversations, we're gonna go through those different aspects of the story and explain them and unpack them just a little bit. Let's start off this morning uh, with a word of prayer. And we're just gonna uh, be quiet for a minute and let's, let's take some, some time, each of us in our space and in our heart, and those of you who are watching at home, let's do this as well. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to prepare us to hear from him today and more than that, to speak to us during this season. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what you have done for us and for the world in Jesus. We're also mindful this morning that for some of us, the, the holiday season is a hard season. Uh, there are reminders of difficult things in our lives that happened in our history. and For others of us, Lord, this year in particular may be difficult. Father, we come this morning, uh, especially on behalf of those of us who are hurting, those of us whose hearts um, are, are turned downward even more so because we feel like we're supposed to be happy during this season. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be a comfort today, that your spirit would move in us, that we would taste, that we would taste the, the, the joy of the season, the joy of what you offer us, and the hope. For others of us, Lord, we, we get lost in the busyness. And I pray this morning that um, you would arrest us, that you would stop us, that you would give us stillness and peace in this season. Lord, we come to you with uh, open hands and open hearts, and we ask that you would speak. And we pray together as our Savior taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done okay this morning uh pete and alex read for us isaiah chapter 7 and from matthew chapter 1 and we're going to look at both of those today we're going to start with isaiah chapter 7 and i'd like to begin this morning with a three paragraph quote from another pastor pastor lloyd stilley as he was talking about isaiah i want you to hear his explanation of isaiah Pastor Stilley said, he's considered one of the greatest men of God in the ancient world. He was a counselor to kings and a writer whose Holy Spirit-inspired Old Testament book is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other book except the Psalms. When our Lord Jesus preached his very first sermon, he chose for his text a passage from Isaiah's writings. He was a contemporary to Amos, Hosea, and Micah, if you know those books from the Old Testament each radically devoted to the Lord of Israel and his purposes in the world. But this man is unique among them. He rises to grapple with the troubled times that mark the end of the 8th century BC. So this is the 700 years BC, with a vision of God that is so grand and so clear that it takes your breath away. His calling from God stands as one of the most stirring experiences recorded in the pages of history. And, and listen to this. This is from Isaiah chapter 6, and this is isaiah's call into ministry in the year that king uzziah died and uzziah was a great and and a very popular king in israel so this this would have almost been like uh the death of uh john f kennedy a few of you are old enough to remember that in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple seraphim angels were standing above him each one had six wings with two, he covered his face, two he covered his feet. with two he flew, and one called to one an- they called to one another, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the smoke sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. That was Isaiah's calling. Now Isaiah spoke his prophecy, as I said, 700 years before Jesus. We don't know exactly how the messages of the prophets got compiled into the books in our Old Testament. Many of their messages probably began as, you know, like speeches that they gave many times. Then at some point, either they wrote them down or one of their followers wrote them down. Other parts of their messages probably began as written statements. All of this was compiled and edited, most likely by the prophets and by a group of their followers. And in many cases, they would add some historical detail around the messages to fill out the truth of it. In Isaiah's case, he was writing to the nation of Israel. And if you were with us, I mean, I'm sorry, the nation of Judah. And if you were with us this summer, you may remember that... uh, at a certain point, 900 years or so before Jesus, Israel was a large and powerful nation. And then after the death of King Solomon, there was a civil war. And the nation essentially divided into two smaller nations that could not get along with one another. The northern part of the nation was called Israel. The southern part was called Judah. And Judah had within its borders the capital of the whole which was Jerusalem. So Isaiah is writing after the Civil War, and he's writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah wrote chapter 7 in response to a very dramatic situation in, for the nation of Israel. So this was, a, this was a time that was almost like our current pandemic. You know, it was, a, it was an unforgettable time. It was a dramatic time for them. So how did they get to this dramatic situation that Isaiah was writing into? Well, there were really three things to remember. There was a double-minded leader, there was a deadly conflict, and there was a dumb plan. And this got them to Isaiah chapter 7. First, the double-minded leader was a man named Ahaz. Ahaz's father was Jotham, and his grandfather was the great Uzziah. And both of those were were godly men and men of faith, but, but Ahaz... Ahaz was pretty fickle. Sometimes it looked like he was going to do the right thing, and then other times, not at all. He was double-minded. Then there was a deadly conflict. There were two pretty powerful neighbors who were plotting against Judah. One of them were their brothers, Israel, and another was the smaller kingdom of Aram. This caused fear in Judah. It was also confusing because Israel... Their, their, their brothers, really, their, their ancestral brothers, were joining forces with one of Judah's enemies to attack her. You know, um, boys and girls, I have uh, three sons, and one of those sons is Jordan, who uh, leads worship for us. The, the other two uh, live uh, in toward D.C., and they don't come to Gateway. But this would be like uh, one of my sons getting mad at another one of my sons and, and then asking a person that he barely knows to come help him fight against his brother. This is how Judah felt when Israel joins forces with Aram and begins to attack Judah. And so Ahaz attached a dumb plan. Ahaz decided that he would make an alliance with Assyria, Again, if you were here this summer, you may remember enough about Assyria, but Assyria was a, a gigantic world power who was a really, really, really big bully. So I want you to imagine that uh, you're in school and two people are picking on you and you decide to go to an eighth grader and ask the eighth grader if they will help you with to to fight back against the two bullies who are attacking you only. This eighth grader is huge and also a much bigger bully than either of the two people that are bullying you. Why would you do such a dumb thing? But this is what Ahaz did. Ahaz went to make a pact with Assyria, or he wanted to, against Israel and Aram. So God asked Isaiah to go speak to Ahaz about this dumb plan. Now, as we said... Isaiah was a prophet. If you're looking, that's one of your words. The prophets were kind of a combination of preacher/poet. In fact, some of the passages they sound almost like an ancient near eastern rapper. And some of them traveled from city center to city center speaking and preaching Some of them stayed mostly around the king's palace and the king's court. Some of them even went to other countries to preach. Some of them were important national figures like Isaiah. They they were counselors to kings, some even more than one king. Others were outcasts who, who only became important after they died and everybody realized that they'd been right. When you read the prophets in the Old Testament, remember, the best way to understand them is by reading the context. Try to figure out what was going on and what situation they were speaking to, and it will help make more sense of what they said. So as you think about the prophets, there are two things to remember. There there were two things they did primarily. There were two roles that the prophets had. There were two functions that the prophets had. First of all, their primary function, their main function, we call telling forth telling they were forth telling god's word so for isaiah and isaiah chapter 7 the key part of his message to ahaz is two things first of all isaiah says in chapter 7 don't be afraid he says this in verse 4 say to him go tell ahaz the double-minded leader be careful Keep calm and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. And he's talking about the leaders of Aram and Israel. So don't be afraid was his first message. And his second message was you walk by faith. Do things by depending on me. Walk by faith or your life will come apart. He says this in verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So the prophets were often just telling God's word. They were telling people what God had in mind for them, what God thought about what they were doing. And so Ahaz, uh, uh, Isaiah goes to tell Ahaz, this is a dumb plan. Don't be afraid of these two weak kings. Just, just be faithful, follow me. You know, he often has the same, tell us the same thing, doesn't he? And then the other function of the prophets, the second function of the prophets was foretelling. So they would foretell God's Word, and then they would foretell what God was going to do. Now, don't think of this really as predicting the future. Sometimes it had that effect, but really this was letting people know the movement of God. Last week, we compared the movement of God to a stream of water. and remember we said there's like a river over here, a small little river, There's a lake over here. There are little mud puddles over here. There are a lot of places where little droplets of water can gather. But if you want to be part of the movement of God, you need to be in this stream. Here's the stream of God, the movement of God. And the prophets would often tell the people, look, here's the movement of God, and it's going this direction, and it's going to end up here. And if you don't join it, this is what's going to happen to you. They would foretell what was going to happen. Now, a lot of times this was just good godly wisdom. And knowing God and knowing him well, and they could observe where the movement of God was going. They could see that the people of God were not aligning with the movement of God. It was really easy. And they would foretell what was going to happen. But sometimes these messages amounted to uh, pretty incredible predictions. And they would get very, very specific. And in verses 10 through 17 of Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah engages in some foretelling that gets pretty specific. Now listen, when Ahaz and his court first heard this, they might have been confused. They didn't know exactly what Isaiah meant or what he was referring to, but still this should have inspired them to act with faith. So let's hear Isaiah's message in uh, chapters 10 and, uh, verses 10 through 14 of Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Ask him to show you, because this is a big one, Ahaz. Whether the deepest depths are in the highest height, no matter what it is, ask God to show you, and he will, because you've got to get this one right. Remember, don't be afraid, act by faith. But Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this sounds pretty faithful, It sounds like, you know, I don't want to test God, but the prophet had just told him to test God. So then Isaiah said, all right, here now, you house of David, look, is it not enough for you to try the patience of people? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord's just going to give you a sign. And here's the sign, and this is a sign for Ahaz and for Ahaz's whole people, in fact, for the whole world. He says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And will call him Emmanuel. Boys and girls, that's one of your words. In other words, God is going to give you and your whole people a sign that will be a virgin who will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. I'm going to have more to say about this next week. But for this morning, know this. That word Emmanuel means God. God with us. So some young woman giving birth under strange circumstances, they're going to call him Emmanuel. So did you get that? God is somehow going to come be with us? Does this mean in some spiritual sense, like, like God is always with us? Was, was Isaiah reminding us of that? Or, or it seems like he's saying more than that. Did this mean that like, like God was going to appear like he did to Moses on Mount Sinai? Or did this mean that he would lead the people like he did in the, cl- in the cloud in the desert? Here's the thing. No one really knew exactly what this meant. They wondered, but no one knew exactly what this meant for 700 years. They were certainly familiar with this passage. Isaiah's writings, as we said, were part of the greatest hits from the Old Testament. They were well known even while he was still alive. They were well known. So, this was a well known section, but not well understood by any means. Some had come to believe that it would have something to do with the coming of the Messiah. But really, everybody was just waiting to see what God would do. They were, they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, 700 years later, we get the story that Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, out of reverence for God's Word, let's go old school and stand as we hear Matthew 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. Verse 18 through the end of the chapter from Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is such a compelling story. We'll go over this more next week when we talk about the Holy Family. But, but Joseph was, was a really good man. And he knew he couldn't marry Mary under these circumstances, but he also didn't want to embarrass her. He could have. And it would have it perhaps saved face for himself, but he didn't want to do that to Mary. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You may know this, but that's what the name Jesus means. God saves. All this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here he quotes Isaiah The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. You may be seated. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let me end today by offering up two truths that spill out of the work of the prophets. So two things that you and I need to remember that spill out of the life and the writings and the work of the prophets. For those of you who are believers... These truths are reminders. They, they set us up for the upcoming season of Advent. If you're a skeptic, you, you're going to have trouble with both of these truths. But I want to encourage you to consider them. Don't, don't just simply discard them. There's, there's, honestly, there's too much at stake. So truth number one, history is his story. History, all of history is his story. This our lives everything that's happened to the human race is is what God is doing we are living out what God is doing Isaiah offered this cryptic mysterious message about a virgin giving birth and then declaring that he will somehow be God with us and then Jesus last week we referred if you were here you may remember to the promise God made to Abraham That Abraham would, one, be the father of a great nation, a great people. Two, that these people would have a great home. And three, that these people would be a blessing to the whole world. But God also extended that promise to Abraham's seed. Do you remember? And the apostle Paul made the point that the offer was to his seed, as in singular, as in one seed, as in Jesus. And we said that Paul realized the titanic point of that was that Jesus was the point, always, even from the beginning. It was always pointing toward God showing us himself in his son, Jesus. History is his story. This is why Paul said in another place, in him, Ephesians 1.11, in him, in Jesus, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will the stream of god everything conforms to the to the to the movement of god to the activity of god history is his story This is why Moses warned the Israelites before they entered the promised land. So I'm going back a few hundred years now. Even before Isaiah, Moses and the people of Israel were wandering in the desert, and then they were about to go into the promised land and kind of take over what would one day be the nation of Israel. And Moses gives them a a sermon right before they go into the promised land because he's not going to go with them. And that sermon is essentially the book of Deuteronomy. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning of verse 10. It's not on the screen. I want you to listen. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. You're going in. You're going to take it. Everything is going to go well for you. When you're full, when your bellies are full, when you look around and the land is yours, then I want you to praise the Lord for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses in South Riding and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, you get that Tesla and all you have is multiplied. Then... Your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock because history is his story. He gave you manna to eat in the desert because history is his story. Something your fathers had never known to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself... My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he, history is his story, it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. History is his story, and this week, whenever you're tempted to be overwhelmed with all that you're Going through, or even all that you've got to do, take some time to remember that history is His story. He is writing His story through us. I would encourage you, if you have time this week, to read the opening accounts of the biographies. If you have the practice, which I strongly encourage, of, of doing some devotional time with God, maybe spend some time this week reading Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Luke chapter 1 and 2. And then for a very, very different take, look at John chapter 1. Look for reminders that history is his story. Truth number two that spills out of the life and work of the prophets is this story, this overall story, the story of Jesus, the thing that, that draws us together, the reason we gather here on Sunday mornings, this story is true. Look, this is part of Matthew's point in his use of the writings of the prophets. A couple of years ago, we spent a couple of weeks during the Advent season talking about the virgin birth and being really honest about whether or not that was believable. We found that there were things about the virgin birth that, were, that merited some skepticism. But in the end, it was, it was very, very believable. This story is true, and this is part of Matthew's point. again and recounting the prophets. Some scholars have suggested there are over 300 prophecies related to Jesus in the Old Testament. This week, I ran into a a work that I I had never heard of before. It was by Peter Stoner. Uh, He he wrote a book in the middle of the 20th century. uh, Dr. Stoner was chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And at one point, Dr. Stoner employed 800 of his students in a research project to try and identify the probability of biblical prophecies actually coming true in the life of one person. He decided to narrow the work down finally to the eight most specific prophecies related to the work of Jesus. Listen to these. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which states, we'll we'll go over that in one of our weeks when we're doing our Old Testament readings, which states that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which declares that a messenger would come before the Messiah who would prepare the way for him, be this important figure that would prepare the way for the Messiah. Zechariah 9, 9, which states that at some point, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 11:12, 12, which hints that the Messiah will be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11:13, 13, which suggests that the money would be used to buy a potter's field. Isaiah 53, 7 tells us that the Messiah will remain silent while he's afflicted. And then Psalm 22:16, 16, which tells us that he will die with his hands and feet pierced. So listen to this. Dr. Stone examined the probability of one of these prophecies being fulfilled in a person's life. Multiplying all those probabilities together produces a number rounded off of 1 times 10 to the power of 28. Then, dividing this number by an estimate of the number of people who've lived since the time of these prophecies, which he decided was roughly 88 billion, Produces a probability of all eight prophecies being fulfilled accidentally in the life of one person, and the probability would be 1 times 10 to the power of 17. Or that's 1, and he wrote the number out, there's a lot of zeros. It's 1 in 100 quadrillion. Then Dr. Stoner said this to explain it. He said, let me help you visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat, thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded person to draw one, their chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Suppose, let's consider our probability, suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and lay them across the face of the state of Texas. (laughs) The state of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Two feet deep. Now, mark one of these silver dollars somewhere in Texas. Stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a person and tell them they can travel as far as they want, but they must pick the one silver dollar and say, this is the right one, what chance would they have of getting the right one? Roughly, the exact same chance that the prophets would have would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in one person. Look, if you're a skeptic, I, I get that there are answers to Dr. Stoner's probabilities. We're not, we're not gonna address those today, except to say, Some of the prophetic assertions are pretty amazing. And a really good explanation for how all of that worked out in the life of one person is that it's true. Remember, Christian, we don't follow Jesus because he was a compelling person. Don't miss this. We don't follow Jesus because he was a compelling person. He was a compelling person, but that's not why we follow him. We don't ultimately follow Jesus because the way of life he suggested works. Although it does. We learned in our last series of lessons that if we do it Jesus' way, it works. We don't don't follow Jesus because this is a warm, good-feeling story. Actually, parts parts of it are far from that. We follow Jesus because this story is true, and it compels us to follow him. In fact, the hero of this story... Jesus, offers himself to us as a gift. He offers himself to us as a gift. That's the greatest Christmas present ever. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. History is his story, and This story is true. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that uh, you showed us preeminently, clearly, oh, Lord, you showed us who you are and how you feel about us, how you feel about your world. You showed us in Jesus. And this morning we remember that. We thank you so much for the words of the prophets. We thank you that you told us what you were going to do and then you did it confirming. And, oh, Lord, I pray for reminders this week that uh, history is your story and that the story is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.